Thank you for checking out our sermon here at Hope Church. We exist to connect people to live the life of a Jesus follower. And we're excited that you came across this message and are tuning in. Just wanna make you aware of a couple things before we get to the sermon. First, we'd love to connect with you. You can follow us on our social networks by searching at Hope Church LV. Also, be sure to check out our website, hopechurchonline.com. There, you can find out more information about who we are and where we're headed as a church. Once again, thanks for checking out our sermon here at Hope Church. Please let us know if there's any questions you have or any way we can come alongside you and your family. Enjoy the message. Hope Church, as we bring this weekend, the summer preaching series to a close, I get to introduce you to one more of my friends who has a passion for the West Coast. And actually, he's more than a friend. He is my baby brother. I've known him since he was born. I've seen him run around the house naked. I know everything about him. I know how annoying that he can be at times. Now, all kidding aside, uh, you are in store for a treat today. My brother is one of the finest pastors you will ever want to meet. He pastors the great Highland Park Baptist Church in Muscle Shoals, Alabama, my hometown. It's a church that has been involved with us at Hope in planting churches and working overseas for years. Since he's been there, he has led them to engage with us in the West. They've planted churches in Las Vegas. They've planted churches in Southern California. They've been involved with us all up and down the West Coast, all the way to the continent of Africa. So it's a great joy for me today to be able to introduce you to my baby brother, Brett Pittman. Well, good morning, Hope Church. After 15 years, all I can say is it is about time. <laughs> I watched that intro video in the first service, and I thought to myself, I doubt that D.A. Horton or Dr. Ed Litton got introduced in exactly that same way. If Vance has seen either of them run through the house naked, we got bigger issues than we know how to deal with. Amen, right? It is so good to be here and to be with you and to have the opportunity to share the word with you this morning. I love this church. I thank God for what he has done here at uh, Hope Church. And I, I know already, you, you've been listening now for about a minute and a half, and I know what's in your mind. I mean, you're already listening and you're thinking to yourself, dang, he's a lot better looking than his brother, right? I mean, let's just get honest. That's what, no, a lot of you are going, man, he sounds just like his brother. And we get that a lot. Uh, I had someone come up after the first service and they said, I kept closing my eyes and I thought it was Pastor Vance. And uh, when I get excited, I go up about two octaves just like he does, you know, if we get too excited, I'm afraid our heads are going to explode because our voices just keep getting higher and higher. But it is so good to be with you. Uh, many of you I've, I've gotten to know through the years, and I uh, love Pastor Teddy. I've had my brother come and uh, preach at my church either two or three times. Uh, this is my first time to get to preach here. Now, I don't have him come because I like the way he preaches better than the way he likes to hear me preach. I have him come preach at my church because that is the only way he'll allow Pastor Teddy to come and sing at my church. And so uh, we love Teddy in North Alabama. And I want to thank you for your hospitality. Man, you guys are, uh, have taken such good care of us. 
other than Travis for the last several weeks building me up um, uh, to a level that I could never live up to those expectations. But you guys have been so gracious. My wife and I were staying over here at Green Valley Ranch, and I mean, they have indoor plumbing and everything. Us people from Alabama, we don't know what to think about it. And, it's awesome, and so, uh, but no, it's been so good to be here and so excited about what God's going to do today, and I want to just thank you for your heart for the nations, your heart for our continent. I want to thank you for your heart for your pastor and his family. Um, I didn't say this in the last service, but you, you have blessed my family uh, by loving on my brother and my, my sister in love and my nieces and my nephews, and so thank you for being that kind of church I remember over 16 years ago when Vance first told me that he was going to Las Vegas to plant a church. Back then, I was not married. My wife and I were engaged and um, did not have any children. The closest thing I had to children were Hannah, Caleb, and Elijah. Faith did not exist back in those days. And I remember thinking to myself, if they go to Las Vegas, what in the world is going to happen to those kids? And to see them all serving here in this body in love with Jesus, and that's a testimony to the way you have loved your pastor. And so thank you for that. And um, it's just, uh, it is great to be here. Let's pray. Father, we have gathered in this place for one reason, and that is to magnify the name of Jesus. No one else here matters. Today, today is not about this worship team. It's not about me. It's not even about the people sitting out here. Today is all about you. You are truly awesome. You are the only one worthy of being described as awesome. Anything else that we would ascribe that word to falls short. But you, because of who you are, you are deserving of the fullness of our awe and our reverence and our respect and our worship. You are high and lifted up, magnified, glorified. And today, we rightfully acknowledge who you are. God, I pray today, as we look at your word, you're an errant, infallible, life-changing word. I pray that you would convict and rebuke and encourage by the power of your holy word. I declare my utter dependence on you this morning. Lord Jesus, I need you. May nothing I say in any way, be contrary to the veracity of your word. Invade this place this morning with your presence. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen and amen. If you have a copy of God's word, I want to ask you to open it or to turn it on to Matthew chapter 8. The gospel of Matthew chapter 8. At my church right now, we are journeying straight through the Gospel of Matthew. And uh, this past Sunday, I preached the passage of Scripture that I'm going to be sharing with you today. Uh, that was not what I had intended to preach when Vance asked me to come. And uh, it's really not even what I wanted to preach today, but it is what God has just burned in my heart this week 
uh, to share with you. So Matthew chapter 8, we begin reading in verse number 18. Matthew 8, verse 18, the Bible says, Now when Jesus saw a crowd around him, he gave orders to depart to the other side of the sea. And a scribe came and said to him, Teacher, I will follow you wherever you go. Jesus said to him, The foxes have holes and the birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. And another of the disciples said to him, Lord, permit me first to go and bury my father. But Jesus said to him, Follow me and allow the dead to bury their own dead. When he got into the boat, his disciples followed him. And behold, there arose a great storm on the sea, so that the boat was being covered with the waves. But Jesus himself was asleep. And they came to him and woke him, saying, Save us, Lord, we are perishing. And he said to them, Why are you afraid, you men of little faith? Then he got up and rebuked the winds and the sea, and it became perfectly calm. And the men were amazed and said, What kind of man is this that even the winds and the sea obey him? When you study the Gospel of Matthew, it's important to understand what Matthew's purpose was in writing this book. Obviously, we understand that this book was written under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, but Matthew was writing to a Jewish audience to present Jesus as the Messiah, to present him as the one that the prophets had prophesied about. And so Matthew is presenting Jesus as the promised one of heaven. And in doing so, he, he quotes a lot from the Old Testament, but Matthew also focuses a lot of detail on the teaching and the ministry of the Lord Jesus. In chapters 5 through 7, Matthew details for us one sermon from the Lord Jesus. It's a sermon that you and I commonly know as the Sermon on the Mount. Matthew gives us uh, much more detail about that message than any of our other gospel writers. When you get to chapter 8, Matthew shifts gears a little. Matthew begins to talk about some of the miraculous works of the Lord Jesus Christ all throughout chapters 8 and 9. And at my church, as we've studied through this passage and through these chapters, I've given one overarching theme to chapters 8 and 9, and it's the central truth I want to share with you today. And here it is. It's very simple. It is simply that when the hope of Jesus encounters the hurt of humanity, unbelievable things happen. When the hope of Jesus encounters the hurt of humanity, the unbelievable happens. At the very beginning of chapter 8, we're introduced to a man who the Bible calls a leper. He was one that had, had come down with the disease of leprosy and it had begun to eat away at his core and uh, was manifesting itself through his body and was destroying his body. He was, he was literally dying from the inside out. And as a result, he was a, a social outcast and he was a spiritual outcast. He was one that, that no one would spend any time with. And yet one day this leper hears that Jesus is coming. He hears the story of the hope of Jesus. And he goes running to Jesus and says, please, Lord, clean me. If you'll just speak the word, I will be clean. And in that instant, the hope of Jesus met the hurt of humanity and something unbelievable happened. He was healed. He was made clean. Keep reading in Matthew chapter 8. Immediately following that story, we read the story of a centurion, a Roman soldier, a man who would have been hated by the, the Jews of his day. He had a servant that was sick. 
deathly sick. And, and the, the word that's used in the Greek to describe this servant is a word that, that, that lets us know that this was a young servant, maybe even the child of one of his servants. And this centurion reaches out to Jesus and asks Jesus to invest and to, to involve himself in the life of this servant, another human that was at the point of hurt. Jesus begins to head towards the centurion's house, and this centurion says, no, I'm not worthy that you should come to my house. Just speak the word, and my servant will be healed. And Jesus spoke the word. Immediately, the hope of Jesus met the hurt of humanity, and something unbelievable happened. That servant was healed and restored. We then read the story of Jesus in the village of Capernaum, and he went into the home of Peter's mother-in-law. Now, our Catholic friends teach that Peter was the first pope of the Catholic Church. If you're from a Catholic background, uh, you've probably heard that, that Peter was the first pope of the Catholic Church. I want you to know, theologically, I don't align with that, and I do not agree with that. but, But even if it's true, if Peter was the first pope of the Catholic Church, every other pope of all history should be royally ticked off. Because every other pope, had to take a vow of celibacy and could not marry. Peter was married. Peter had a wife. Now, nowhere in Scripture do we read about his wife. Nowhere in history do we read about his wife. But I promise you, Peter had a wife because Peter had a mother-in-law. You do not sign up for a mother-in-law without first getting the wife. Now, men, if you are sitting beside your mother-in-law, you better stop laughing real quick. But it's just the God-honest truth. Any single guys here, any single men? Raise your hand, single guys. Yeah, you single guys? There's not a single guy in this room. There's not a single guy in Las Vegas walking around today going, you know... I don't really want to get married. I don't really want a wife, but I sure would love to have a mother-in-law. No! (laughs) Nobody is saying that. Jesus goes into the home of Peter's mother-in-law. This was the home that Peter would have most likely lived in along with his wife. That would have been the custom of the day. Jesus goes into that home. This would have been the home where Jesus would have spent the night anytime he stayed near Capernaum. And Peter's mother-in-law was sick with a fever. And the Bible says Jesus went into her and he touched her. And he healed her instantly. I love the story because the Bible says immediately she got up and began to serve. And the Bible goes on to tell us that that very night, that Sabbath evening after the Sabbath was over, that people from Capernaum began to flood that house. They began to bring all of the sick and all of the ill and all of the demon-possessed. And, and the Bible says something amazing. Jesus heals them all, heals every single one of them. He does the unbelievable. When the hope of Jesus meets the hurt of humanity, the unbelievable happens. And everything I've described for you, is what we would expect Jesus to do. I mean, we expect Jesus to cleanse the leper. We expect Jesus to heal the servant that is sick. We expect Jesus to miraculously involve himself in the life of Peter's mother-in-law. And and we expect Jesus to heal everyone. That is our expectation. 
But when you get to verse 18, Jesus begins to do some unbelievable things that we would never expect. Verse 18 says a large crowd starts coming to him. I mean, this mass, and that makes sense, right? He had just healed everybody in town. That news spreads quickly. If today in this service, if everyone in the city of Las Vegas that was sick, ill, battling some kind of disease, if everybody in Las Vegas that was sick came here today and got healed in this service, listen, there's not enough seats in this place to take care of everybody that would show up tonight at 6.30. There's not enough seats uh, maybe in all of Nevada to take place of, take the take care of everybody that would show up, right? People would become, they would start coming, and that's exactly what happened. They began to flood to Jesus, and what, what, what does verse 18 say? That Jesus saw them and said, hey, boys, let's go. We, we got to get out of here. I mean, he starts running from the crowd. We don't expect that. It's unbelievable. And then verse 19 tells us that one of these that's in that crowd comes to Jesus. Look at this. Look at verse 19. A scribe came and said to him, Teacher, I will follow you wherever you go. Wow. If someone this morning came to one of these pastors and said, Hey, I want to follow Jesus wherever. I'll go anywhere. I want to follow Jesus wherever he'll lead me. You know what these pastors are going to do? They're going to be excited. They're going to be, man, that's awesome. That's great. I'm sure the other disciples in the background, they were, they were pumped. They were stoked because here's the deal. Up until this point, most of Jesus' real devout followers, they, they were not socialites. They were not the socially elite. The best way I know to describe them is to use just a good old Alabama word. They were rednecks. <laughs> they were rough. They were gruff on the exterior. They were fishermen. They were looked on by society as being, you know, well, we, we endure them, but we don't really like them. Now a scribe comes. A scribe was the teacher of the law. This was a man of power, a man of position. I can see the other disciples going, yes, finally. Finally, somebody that's going to give us some credibility. Man, and he's ready to go anywhere we go. And yet, what did Jesus say to him? We would expect Jesus to say, come on, get in the boat, let's go. But Jesus doesn't do that. Jesus said, oh, you want to follow me wherever I go? You need to know where I go, sometimes there's no place to lay your head. The foxes always have holes. The birds always have nests. But the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. You want to follow me? It's going to be uncomfortable. See, this scribe wanted to follow Jesus as long as it was comfortable. As long as it was easy. There are some of you here this morning that are like this scribe. You like some things you've heard about Jesus. You, you've heard some things from people in this church, and you've seen God do some things in the lives of some people in this church, and, and you kind of like this Jesus guy. You, you like some of the things you hear. You like, some of the, you like being around Jesus. But you're not following Jesus because you don't want to leave your comfort. This mentality that if you become a Jesus follower, all of your problems are going to go away, uh, if you want to disprove that real quickly, become a Jesus follower. Your problems will not go away. They will probably get worse. It's what happened in the life of the Apostle Paul. 
The apostle Paul had it made before he met Jesus. He was a man of power, a man of prestige, a man of position. He meets Jesus and his whole life goes to hell. I mean, he, he, he just, it becomes, it becomes disaster after disaster after disaster for him. This man wanted to follow Jesus as long as it was comfortable. The Bible tells us in verse 19 or in verse 21, a second man comes. Another of the disciples. Now, this term disciple does not speak of one of the 12. It speaks simply of one that was in the crowd. Another comes to him and says, Lord, permit me first to go and bury my father. Now, that sounds reasonable, right? I mean, this guy comes and says, Lord, I want to go. I want to go with you, but, but i got to first go bury my father. Makes sense, logical. We would expect Jesus to go, oh, I'm so sorry. I'm praying for you. Yes, go bury your father. But Jesus doesn't say that, right? Jesus said, let the dead bury the dead. If you're going to follow me, let's go. Now, a lot of people look at this and they, they go, man, that's such a harsh saying of Jesus. But you need to understand something. This, this man who came and said, let me first go bury my father, he was not a grieving son whose father had just died. This was a common phrase in that culture in that day and age. When he said, let me first go bury my father, he was talking about doing things on his own time. See, his father was not yet dead. The reason I know that is because in that culture, as soon as someone died, they buried them. Now, that to me is a pretty good strategy. That makes sense to me. You know, in our culture, we wait two, three days, sometimes a week to let all the family get in. I spend a lot of time in funeral homes. I do not like it. I hang out with enough dead people on Sunday mornings at church. I don't want to hang out with dead people during the week. Amen, right? Y'all apparently have some of those too around here. You know what I'm talking about. In that culture, when someone died, they immediately put them in the ground. So what was this man saying when he said, let me first go bury my father? See, culturally, to gain his inheritance, this son had to stay with the father until he died and had to make sure that his father got a proper burial. Then he could obtain his inheritance. Here's what he was saying. He was saying, Lord, I want to follow you as long as it's convenient. As long as it doesn't disrupt the way I live my life. Some of you here today, that might be your mentality. You're going, I like Jesus. I like what he says. I like what he teaches. And, and I want to follow him. I want the joy and I want the peace. And I want to go to heaven when I die. But, but just not yet. I like my sin. Yesterday, my wife and I spent most of the day down on the Las Vegas Strip. I've been to the Strip before. And, um, and, and the same thing happens every time I go. You know, two people from Alabama, and I can't speak for everybody from Alabama, but I can speak for the two of us. People say, what in the world do you two do on the Las Vegas Strip? Well, that's very easy to answer. For the most part, we go... Right? I mean, it's, uh, it is eye-opening. Now, don't misunderstand me. There's no more sinfulness or wickedness or evil in Las Vegas than there is in Muscle Shoals, Alabama. You guys might flaunt it a little more. Back where I come from, we hide our sin. I laugh every time I go to Walmart. I go to Walmart, and I can always spot the Baptist in Walmart. Because the Baptists in Walmart build what I call a cereal fort in their buggies. They get about 14 boxes of cereal and they line their buggy with all of the cereal. 
and they put their beer down in the middle of all those boxes and cover it with more cereal boxes. And they're just pushing through. Hey, preacher, I'm just buying a bunch of cereal. Oh, you liar. Right? There's no more sin here. It just might be flaunted a little more. And we were there. And just eye-opening. We, we went to a show last night. And uh, um, now, it's pretty obvious. There are some shows that you just don't need to go to, right? I mean, you see the advertisement. And so we were looking at different shows and, you know, and, and you, you got about 14 or 15 different illusionists that we could have gone to see. And you have about 312 uh, Cirque du Soleil shows that we could have gone to see. But, but my wife and I last night went to Caesar's Palace and watched Reba McIntyre and Brooks and Dunn. Yeehaw! Now, here's the deal. I hate country music. <laughs> I can't admit that back home because they will vote me out of the state of Alabama. My wife's been a big Reba McIntyre fan for a long time, and so we went. We had a great time. But, you know, walking around, here, here's what I've seen. I've seen a lot of people that love their sin. Maybe you're one of those. You love your sin. You enjoy your lifestyle, and you're, you, you want to follow Jesus, but you want to do it when it's convenient. Your, your mindset is, I want to wait until I'm older. I want to wait till right before I die. Then I'll give everything to Jesus. Here's the problem with that. You might not be promised later on. And if you do get later on, you might not be promised that Jesus will still be drawing you later on. That's why the Word of God says, today is the day of salvation. Today, if you hear His voice. Man said, I want to follow you, but I want to do it when it's convenient. We don't expect Jesus to look at potential followers and throw up roadblocks, but he did. And then the Bible tells us he gets in the boat with his disciples, and they head out across the Sea of Galilee. The Sea of Galilee is really more like a lake. If you've ever been there, you know what I'm talking about. It's not, you, we hear the word sea and we picture a big massive sea, but it really looks more like a lake. I've been there twice. It's a beautiful body of water. It's a gorgeous area. Mountains surround the, the Sea of Galilee. In the middle of that mountain range is a, is a deep ravine. It looks like a V. And what will happen is every now and then that cold air from the mountains will come down through that ravine and hit some of the warm air there at the surface of the water. And, and storms will just rise up. Jesus gets in the boat with his disciples. They head out towards the other side. And, and as they're journeying across, that's exactly what happens. A storm comes up. A storm arises out of nowhere. And these disciples are overwhelmed. Luke's gospel tells us that the boat begins to fill with water and, and they are doing what they know to do. They're, they're bailing water and they're lightening their load. They're doing everything they can to, to try to endure this storm. Now what would we expect Jesus to do? We would expect Jesus to be right there in the middle helping. But where is Jesus? He is in the back of the boat, asleep, sound asleep. We see in this his humanity. Jesus was 100% fully man. At the same time, he was 100% fully God. He is the God man. He's not part God, part man. He is fully God and at the same time, fully man. Pastor, do you understand that? No. 
And if I try too hard to understand it, my brain will explode and gray matter will leak out of my ears, right? You can't understand. I'm glad I have a God that I cannot understand. I'm glad I have a God that I cannot wrap around my mind around. I'm glad I have a God that does not fit into all of my calculations and all of my formulations of what God ought to be. He's the God-man. And here he is in the boat, asleep. The disciples, man, they're losing it. Boat's going under. Terrible storm. And they go running and they wake Jesus up. Lord, do you not care? Save us. We're perishing. And, you know, when you read the Bible, I believe with all of my heart every word of Scripture is verbally inspired. We call that plenary inspiration. But there's a lot that is not told. And I have a pretty vivid imagination. And sometimes that can be dangerous. But I kind of imagine the way this really unfolded. Because in our expectation, you know what we would expect Jesus to do? We would expect Jesus to shoot up out of the bed and immediately start fixing everything. But so far in this passage, he's not been doing what we would expect. I remember several years ago, our little girl, Abby, who's seven now, she was about five. And it was one night in the middle of the night, I was in the bed asleep, sound asleep like Jesus was here in the boat. I'm laying there and... She came and got right in my face. And she started saying, Daddy. Daddy. Now, if you have never been awakened in that way, your heart better be strong, or you better be ready to meet Jesus, one or the other. I mean, I open my eyes, and I'm expecting to see Linda Blair right there. And I mean, I, I'm looking for the head to spin and green vomit to go everywhere. She's like, Daddy. And I shoot up, what? We expect Jesus when the disciples come, Lord, we're dying. We expect him to jump up out of bed and go, oh, 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 I didn't know, right? I don't believe that's what Jesus did. You know what I think Jesus did? I think Jesus went, ah. Why in the world did you guys wake me up? Why are you afraid? Where is your faith? And then he walks to the front of the boat and he looks around. Hush! And it all goes silent. Now, the English translation of hush I really don't like. Because the Greek word that's here in this text is a powerful word. When I hear the word hush, I, 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 picture a, I picture a little sweet grandma. I, I picture a grandmother who's looking at her little grandbaby and saying, Now, honey, honey, sugar pie, w- would you just hush? Just so. Jesus, Jesus didn't look at the storm and go, Well, now, sweetheart, would you hush? No. You want to know what Jesus said? I believe with all of my heart, and this is, I think, verified when you look at it in the, the, the emphasis that's there in the Greek. Jesus stood there and he said, Shut up! And you know what happened? it shut up. I might tell someone to shut up and they keep talking. When Jesus says shut up, you're going to shut up. Jesus said shut up. The wind stopped blowing. The rain stopped falling. The waves stopped crashing. I mean, instantly, perfectly calm. And all of our gospel writers that tell this story, they end right there. Jesus says, hush, be still, be calm. The disciples are like, wow. What kind of man is this? And they don't tell us what happened. So here goes my imagination again. You know what I think really happened? 
I think Jesus looked at the wind and the waves, said, shut up, turned around, looked at his disciples, and went back to bed. That's what I really think happened. I think he's just like, guys, I'm going back to bed. Don't you dare wake me up again until we get to the other side, right? It has been said that all people are either in a storm, have just come out of a storm, or are headed to a storm. Now, if that is true, if this morning you are not in a storm or have just come out of a storm, I have two words for you. Uh-oh. Because if you're not in one and you've not just come out of one, odds are you're headed into one. What happens when the storm comes? And it will come. Don't buy in to this belief that if you follow Jesus with all of your heart and if you're passionate in your faith, you won't have any storms. Read this text. This text says the disciples followed him and headed straight into the storm. Sometimes by following Jesus, you will walk directly into the midst of a storm. So what happens when the storm comes? I believe there are two promises that Jesus wants us to be reminded of in this passage, and I want to share those with you today. Promise number one. Jesus will do what he has said he will do. You need to listen a little better. Jesus will do what he has said he will do. Always, at all times, in every way. Jesus will do what he has promised to do. Look at verse 18. When Jesus saw the crowd around him, he gave orders to depart to the other side of the sea. When you go read Mark's account in Mark chapter 4, verse 35, look at this. Mark records for us exactly what Jesus said. Jesus said to them, let us go across to the other side. Jesus did not say, hey, men, I hope we go to the other side. I think we will make it to the other side. Jesus said, men, let us go to the other side. Here's what that means. For the disciples, making it to the other side was never in question. If Jesus says we are going to the other side, you mark it down. You are going to the other side. That's why Jesus rebuked his disciples. His disciples showed a dire lack of faith because they didn't trust what Jesus had said. They didn't believe what Jesus had said. And here's what will happen in your life when the storm begins to rage, when the wind begins to howl and the rain begins to fall and the lightning begins to flash and the thunder begins to roll and the waves begin to crash, you will begin to doubt what Jesus has promised. See, in the midst of the storm... You will begin to wonder if his loving kindness endures forever. During the storm, you will question if he is truly the one that will never leave you nor forsake you. During the storm, your mind will question if he is truly one who sticks closer than a brother. When the storm is raging... You will wonder to yourself, in your heart, you will doubt the promise that his grace is sufficient. When the storm is raging, 
Your mind will question whether or not he is truly the good shepherd that always cares for his sheep. And this morning, in the storm, here's what you need to remember. Jesus will always do what he has said he will do. In the storm, he is the one who sticks closer than a brother. When the wind is blowing, he is the good shepherd that always cares for his sheep. When the rain is falling, his loving kindness does endure to all generations. When the thunder is rolling, I promise you, his grace is sufficient in all situations, at all times, in every situation. His grace is sufficient. When the storm is raging, he is the one that will never leave you nor forsake you. When the storm hits, remember Jesus will do what he has said he will do. Promise number two and we're done. Nothing in your life is too big for God. Nothing in your life is too big for God. Verse 24. There arose a great storm on the sea. The Bible says that this storm came from nowhere. Yesterday when we were there on the strip, we were in the Bellagio, and I started seeing people running from outside. The first thought in my mind was, Dear God in heaven, Please say, we are not under attack. Now hear me, I'm ready to meet Jesus. I just don't really want to meet him on the Las Vegas Strip. All right, I, I don't want somebody to stand at my funeral and say, he died on the Las Vegas Strip. I don't want somebody filling in the blanks there, all right? But it wasn't that. It was a rainstorm. My wife and I, apparently, every time we come to Vegas, we are like magnets for rain. Every time we come, it rains. And some of you are thinking, well, Lord, help us out. Come more often, right? So every time it starts getting dry, I tell my brother to invite me to come preach, and we'll bring some rain with us. I, I'm not kidding. Every time we come, the first time we ever came back in 2001, it rained more in that one week than it had in the previous 12 months. It was crazy. You guys got uh, torrential downpours during that time. That storm came out of nowhere yesterday. That's what happened on the Sea of Galilee that day. Now, these were fishermen. They had seen storms before. They had watched these storms develop, but this storm was different. This storm was bigger than them. There is a lie that has infiltrated the church. Many of you, if you've been around church very much, you've heard it. Many of you have probably spoken it. And many of you have believed it. But it is a lie. And it is a lie that comes where all lies come from. It comes from the father of lies. It is a lie straight from the pit of hell. And here it is. Here's the lie that has become very popular in many of our churches. It's the lie that says God will not put more on you than you can bear. That is a lie. God has never promised to not put more on you than you can bear. Now, I know what some of you are thinking right now. You're doing what some of my people at my church did last week. You're going, whoa, 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 whoa. I don't agree. Wait a minute. Wait a minute. I know. That's in the Bible. And you're, you're breaking out the concordance and you're searching. Bear, bear, bear. It's not there. All right. More problems, trouble. You're searching because you're going, I know. I've heard it. I've heard it. And here's what you're thinking of. You're thinking of 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 13, where the Bible says that God will not allow any temptation to come on you, but such you're able to bear. He never made that promise about trouble. 
He promised it about temptation, never about trouble. As a matter of fact, Scripture teaches just the opposite. God will put more on you than you can bear. Trouble will overwhelm you. Trouble will beat you down. And that's what these disciples were experiencing. They were experiencing a storm that was bigger than them. It was a storm that they could not stand in the face of. It was a storm that rose up, and they tried to rise up against it, and every time it knocked them down. Now, if you've never been in a storm that's bigger than you, you just keep living. Most of my life, I didn't have to walk through any real bad storms. Both of my parents are still living. Your pastor, Vance, is my only brother. He's my older brother. My parents shot for perfection the first time and missed. <laughs> and I'll let you just finish that thought, right? My immediate family growing up is all still alive. My wife and I have three children, all healthy, all great children, never had any major issues. I've never been fired from a job. I spent most of my life never experiencing a storm bigger than me. But two years ago, I walked through the deepest darkest hell I could ever imagine. It was bigger than me. It knocked me down and it knocked me out. I tried to rise up in the face of that storm and I could not. It left me a shell of a man. Some of you have been there. You've experienced that storm that is bigger than you. When that storm comes, you need to remember, nothing in your life is too big for God. You might be thinking to yourself, Pastor, you don't know the size of my storm. You don't know how big my problem is. You don't know how big my difficulty is. And you are correct. I do not know the size of your difficulty or the, the hugeness of your problem, but here's what I do know. I know how big my God is, and I promise you, nothing in your life is too big for him. Verse 24 said a storm rose up. Oh, but don't miss verse 26, because in verse 26, the Savior rose up. In verse 24, a storm got up and began to rear its ugly head. It began to bring devastation and pain and agony in the lives of those Jesus followers. But in verse 26, the Savior got up. And when he got up, he brought peace and contentment and joy and satisfaction. And I promise you, when the Savior gets up in the face of your storm that has risen up, the storm will always cease. The Savior rose up. He got up out of that bed. And when he gets up, the storm has to subside. It has to. Now, here's what some of you are thinking. Pastor, that's great and all. But when is Jesus going to get up in my situation? When is he going to rise up in my storm? I can tell you the answer to that. He will rise up when he gets ready to. 
It will not be on your time. It will not be on my time. It will be on his time. And when he gets good and ready, he will get up. He will rise up. And, and here's the real crux of this statement. He might not rise up in your lifetime. That storm you're in might be the very storm that kills you. It might be the storm that takes your life. But the instant you draw your final breath, at that very moment, the Savior who has already risen up is going to rise up again. And that storm that takes your life will end. It will not take your eternity Better to walk through a storm in this life than to spend all eternity experiencing the storm of the wrath of the Lord Jesus Christ. The storm rose up, but in the face of it, the Savior rose up. There is nothing in your life too big for God. There is no sin. There is no trial. There is no tribulation. There is no difficulty. There is no, there is no bondage. There is no enslavement that is too big for God. What you need today is you need Jesus to rise up in the middle of your situation. Father, I praise you today for your word. Your holy, inspired, infallible word. Your word of truth. And Father, this morning I pray for people all over this place. Lord, there are some who are like those first two men that we saw in this passage. They like you. They like things about you. And there's a part of them, they want to follow you, but they're not really following you because they've been trying to do it at their own comfort level or out of their own convenience. And Lord Jesus, today what you're doing is you're convicting them. You are convicting them of lostness. That tugging in their life right now is the Holy Spirit of God convincing of their lostness and their desperate need for you. And I pray this morning in repentance and faith, they would trust you as the Lord of their life. Lord, there are some this morning that your spirit today is rebuking just like you rebuked those disciples. Rebuking of a lack of faith and a lack of trust. But then, Lord, what I really believe today is that there are many in this place that your spirit is comforting. Maybe there are some that they're in a storm that's bigger than them. They're in a storm that has overwhelmed them. It's knocked them down. And with everything in them, they're trying to rise up. And they can't. Lord, I pray today they would be comforted by the promise that you always do what you say you will do. And they will be comforted by the promise that nothing no sin, no storm, no trial, no tribulation. Nothing is too big for you. Lord Jesus, speak to hearts in this place. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I'm going to ask you to stand. Some of the pastors of your church are here at the front. Our worship team is going to lead you in a song of response. If God's spoken to your heart this morning, if you need to be saved, if you need to make some other decision as a follower of Jesus, Maybe you just need to come and get in this altar and pray or pray with one of these pastors, whatever God's laying on your heart. We invite you right now to respond in obedient faith to the Lord Jesus Christ as we sing. You be obedient.